it's truly good to see you all this morning. Uh, it's been a it's been a second since the last time I preached, um, and and two weeks ago I was supposed to preach, but um, my wife had an appendix. What is it? Yeah, that, what is that thing called? The thing where your appendix says, "Uh oh, yeah, not good." So, so I was with her and uh, taking care of Joshua during that time, and so there are a lot of you guys who stopped by, or brought food, and and helped out with Joshua, or just held him, and that was super helpful. So thank you all because that was really a blessing to our family. Uh, but we're back here; we're, we made it, and uh, today we're going to be in the Book of Isaiah. And the next couple of times that you see me preach, we're going to be walking through Isaiah chapters one through five, at a minimum. Maybe we'll, maybe I'll keep going with it. We'll see. But I, I want to introduce the book to you, and I want to talk about some of the core themes of, of Isaiah. Because if you're if you're like me or anything like me, uh, the prophets probably scare you a little bit. They're this part of the of, of the Bible that's kind of like you know we know that's important, but it's a little bit it's a little bit much. There's a lot of things going on. And one of the reasons that is, is because they don't necessarily directly just tell you things. You kind of have to be submerged in the prophets to really understand what's going on. You got to read it over and over and over again. And so kind of what I want to do over these next couple sermons that I preach is I want to alleviate some of that fear. I want to show you that, yes, the prophets are a little bit hard, especially the major ones because they're long, but they're worth it. They're worth it. And so today we're going to look at the first 20 verses of Isaiah chapter 1. And, and I want to put before you that Isaiah is using a variety of rhetorical appeals in order to persuade his audience to joyfully commit their hearts to the Lord. He's trying to persuade the people of Israel to joyfully commit their hearts to the Lord. We're going to be reading a lot of scripture this morning, so don't worry about standing up. Uh, but please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to start by just looking at the first two verses, and then we're going to take a little detour, Deuteronomy, and we're going to come back and look at the rest of the passage. So, if you're there, Isaiah chapter 1, first two verses, it says this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 1 introduces us to the main subject, Jerusalem and Judah, and also to the time period during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And these things are very important to the rest of the book because the book takes place during the, the time in the kingdom of Israel where the kingdom has been split into two, but specifically focuses on the smaller southern nation of Judah. What's interesting about the first five chapters about, of, of Isaiah is that it's not necessarily chronologically ordered. Um, in fact, we don't actually get Isaiah's call to ministry until Isaiah chapter 6. But rather than telling this a narrative story right from the get-go, what Isaiah is trying to do is he's trying to give you the tone, the atmosphere of what it looks like to live in, in uh, Judah during this time. In fact, Isaiah probably preached all these messages at different times, and then as he compiled the book of Isaiah together, he took them together and he brought this together so that he could have this preface here so that you can get the major ideas before you get to the rest of the book. You see, Isaiah is laying out the current situation in Judah and Jerusalem. 
And he's also introducing us to some of the major themes that will be discussed throughout the remainder of the book. And today's theme, as we mentioned, is joyful devotion to the Lord. We know this is the theme because this is exactly what Isaiah is chastising them for failing to do. In verse 2, he states, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that this phrase packs a lot of narrative weight. If you lived during this time and you heard, heard Isaiah say this, you would probably have been like, oof, I know exactly what you're talking about. But how exactly has he reared up or brought up or raised the people of Israel? Well, you see, God made a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. They sinned and they rebelled against God, but he promised that there would be a son who was born for Eve who would crush the devil and make all things new. Israel was called God's firstborn son. And they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Israel was supposed to have a renewed relationship with God and then extend that renewed relationship with the rest of the world. You see, in Israel lies the hope for the entire world. But what happens next? What happens after God establishes it? Well, Deuteronomy 32, and the reason I want to go there is because it tells us, it tells us how they treated this unique relationship. You see, in that passage, Moses prophesies the history of Israel all the way to the time of Isaiah and beyond. And so we're going we're gonna to spend a little time there. So flip with me to Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 20. And I'm not going to say a lot. I'm just going to pretty much read it. But I, I'm, I'm bringing you here because I, I want you to know the story of Israel. I want you to know how much weight is being wrapped up in this introductory statement because it adds so much to what Isaiah was saying. Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. All right, stop there. I know. I said I wasn't going to say much. But did you notice that? Did you, did you catch that right there? These are the exact same words that Isaiah is talking about. It's almost as if Moses all those years ago was saying, heaven and earth, I want you to watch Israel and see if they actually make good on what they said they're going to do. And then when we get to Isaiah, he says, your honor, court is now in session. I'd like to call my first witness heaven and earth. They were watching this entire time to see if, 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 if uh, the Israelites could do all that Moses said. Okay, I'm not going to interrupt anymore. But 2 through 20, listen to this with me. May my teaching drop as the rain. May my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show, show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion 
is his people. Jacob is allotted inheritance or heritage. He found him in, in a desert land and in the howling wastes of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for them. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high plains of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jerusalem grew fat and kicked. He grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of the sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. In that passage, Moses prophetically predicts the future of what is going to happen with Israel. This is why this moment is so shocking when we get to Isaiah. Because God has reared up this nation from the moment that he promised that the seed would come from the line of the woman to the promise of Abraham's son, to the liberation from the wicked nation of Egypt, to the conquering of the promised land, to the protection as they forsook God in the time of the judges, to the establishment of the royal dynasty, and even through the demise of the nation. Time and time again, he has cared for the Israelites and given them mercy. And they, and they of all people, have rebelled against the Lord. And in many ways, we're like them today. God has reared us up. He, he woke us up this morning. He put breath in your lungs. He's provided food and shelter for us. And ultimately, if we're in Christ, he has redeemed us. If we're rebelling against the Lord, we are no better than the Israelites. As we return to our primary passage in Isaiah 1, we see that in this one verse, he has used the nation's entire experience to encourage the Israelites to pursue the Lord. Let's read the rest of our passage now. We're going to read Isaiah 2 through 20. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire and your very presence 
Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. You see, Isaiah starts off with the historical argument of saying, you guys, what are you doing? You've continually rebelled against them. But in verses 3 through 9, he continues his appeal by showing them why their rebellion is so foolish. He says it's foolish for four reasons. In verse 3, he says it's foolish because it's against nature. In verse 4, he says it's foolish because it's against their privileged position. And in 5 and 6, he says it's foolish because it's against reason and common sense. And in verse 7 and 8, he says it's against your well-being. Look with me at, at verse 3. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, man, this actually applies to a lot of different animals, right? Dogs know their owner's voices. Sheep are famous for following their, their owner's voices. But cats, on the other hand, are, are bad examples of this because they think that they own the house and their master. The sad thing, though, is in this type of image, we are more like the cat than we are the dog. We're worse than the ox and the donkey. If an animal who has limited cognitive abilities can recognize their owner, then why can't Israel? If an animal can recognize their owner, then why can't Israel recognize their creator? Why can't they recognize their God? You see, this verse shows us that their behavior was worse than the animals that they had dominion over. Yet Israel does not know. You see, the fact that the Lord has reared them up should have naturally led them to praise the Lord. 
Yet God says they do not understand this fact. You see, it's not as if Israel doesn't know who God is, as in they're unaware of who Yahweh the Lord is. It's more about the fact of they don't live in light of this knowledge. God was an intrinsic part of their lives. They worshiped him in the temple. They approached him in prayers. But they lived lives that demonstrated that this knowledge had not reached their hearts. Nature testifies against them, for even the animals know better. He tells us the second foolish reason in verse 4. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You see, Israel has become a sinful nation. They're not simply sinful, but they are laden. They're abounding in sin. Instead of being the Lord's firstborn son, they are the children of evildoers. As Jesus would later say, they are the children of their father, the devil. Instead of clinging to their master, they forsake him. Instead of loving him, they despise him. They've become estranged. In other words, they have departed away from the Lord's family. And I think not only is this the second reason about why this is foolish, but it also is the main charge against the Israelites. You see, why have they become so sinful? Well, it's because they have despised the Lord. Why have they despised the Lord? Because they love their sin. All their issues stem from how they, they live in relationship to God. If he is not their love, their first love, then something else will be. And that desire is what leads to all types of misfortune. You see, this main charge is also the reason why this is so foolish. You see, Israel threw away their relationship with their father, with their king, with their Lord, with the Holy One of Israel, with the one who has full goodness and life in himself. What is Israel without the Lord? It's like trying to have the Avengers without Captain America and Iron Man. Or Star Wars without a Skywalker. Or the Lord of the Rings without Frodo and Samwise. And we all know how that's going because they're doing it right now and it's really bad. Israel without the Lord is no better than the rest of the world. You see, their abandonment of their privileged position testifies against their rebellious hearts. The third foolish reason comes to us in verses 5 and 6. He says, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. God comes to his people, and he says to them, why will you continue with your self-imposed wounds? Your head is sick. Your heart is faint. Your rebellion is the cause of your own pain and suffering. And I think this image is very helpful. I think it's, pro it's probably the best image that Isaiah gives for me personally. And maybe it's because I relate to it so much. Because I feel like we all have these scars that are, you know, that could have completely been avoided. For me, this scar is on my ring finger, on the pad of my finger. And uh, I got this scar from dog watching. And I don't generally like animals, so I don't know why I offered to help someone watch their dog. 
But the day that this was supposed to to go down, I was supposed to go and watch this dog, was also the day that my friends and I had planned a Bob Ross painting night where we would watch the show and paint alongside it, and we were all super excited. We got canvases, and we got supplies, and everything. It was great. So I told myself, I just swing by the the doghouse, you know, um, and, and check on the dog before I went to go, you know, Bob Ross it up. And so I get to their house, which I've never been to before, to watch this dog that I've never met. And this might not be true, but I I feel like it is, because I feel like I remember as I was getting to the doorbell, I already started to hear growling. And so, you know, I was nervous, but you know, I watched some YouTube videos. Uh, I learned, you know, you just gotta be cool and collected. You gotta appear confident. And so I opened the door and there's this big old lab growling at me. And that might not be a, a big dog to you, but for me, that is a big dog. Again, not a dog person. Um, so I muster up some courage. Like I'm trying to keep myself calm. I'm like, all right, cool, collected. We're good. And I, I reach out my hand. He's growling to calm him down, just like Mr. YouTube said. And just like that, boom. Bites my finger. Blood's going everywhere. My flesh is kind of squeezing out my finger. I run through the house trying to get some water. I'm shaking because I'm like, I just lost my finger. Dog just bit me. <laughs> I call Erica because she's my friend and she also has a dog. And so she comes over and I'm like, man, I hope I don't need stitches. Because Bob Ross painting night is tonight. I don't, I don't want to miss it. And so I call my mom and she's like, I don't know. You might need stitches. My grandma lives around the corner. I go to her house and she's like, eh, I don't know. You might need stitches. What do you think I should have did in that situation? Anyone? Super glue? What did you say about it? Duct tape, maybe just anything, maybe just anything. I think the correct response is probably, I should have went to the hospital and got it checked out. But you know what I did? I went to Bob Ross Painting Act. And now I have this permanent little scar on my finger. I had a wound that obviously needed to be bound up and I ignored it. You see those happy little trees wouldn't be so happy if I lost a finger. Happy little trees and artists with big afros are not worth your finger. And your sin is not worth the price of mission. The cost is far too great. You see, common sense testifies against their rebellion. If you're sick, you need a doctor. You don't need to just pretend like nothing's happening. And so, in this way, Isaiah tells them, your rebellion is foolish. The fourth and final foolish reason comes to us in verses eight and, or seven and eight, where we see that rebellion is ultimately against their well-being. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Remember what we said earlier, Isaiah 1 through 5 is not necessarily chronologically organized. You know, Isaiah prophesied about the Babylonian exile, but he didn't necessarily live during that period. So, So he could be referring to a lot of different particular incidents right here in this moment. But the important thing about what he's trying to do with this image is say, this is what happens when you forsake the Holy One of Israel. You leave yourself defenseless. By forsaking God, 
they forsake their own protection. This is ultimately what the booth in a vineyard and the lodge in a cucumber field points to. There are these little shacks which were made so that a family could stay there during the harvest. But once the harvest is over, they moved out of the, out of the house. Or if your field has gone bad and it's no longer worth investing in, what do you do with the shack? You abandon it. It deteriorates or you take it down. You see, rebellion against the Lord is foolish because you invite the Lord's judgment upon yourself and you also lose his presence. But do you, if we put this in its narrative context, do you see how disastrous this is for the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, the location of God's temple, and therefore the location of his presence? They're, they're left alone. I want you to realize the gravity of this. It's as if, it's just like saying when Adam and Eve were in the garden, leave, get out of the garden. Except it's a little bit worse because this is the redemptive plan. If this fails, what hope does the world have left? And why? Why do they continue to live in such a way that invites such dangerous consequences? It's because they love their sin. If you have a sin that you're aware of, if you have something that you're struggling with, don't let it linger. Don't let it fester. Root it out fast before it leads you away from the Savior. At this point, I think we can see that God has every right to abandon the people of Israel. He's upheld his part of the bargain. He's dealt gently with his people. He's been long-suffering. And they, on the other hand, have forsaken him, despised him, rebelled against him. And so after explaining all of this, explaining all of the reasons why they should give their hearts back to the Lord, Isaiah doesn't just stop. He gives them one more reason. Because the Lord has had mercy on them. Read verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Again, it, this could be referring to a lot of different things, but the Lord could have completely eradicated them. And he has every reason to do, do that thing. Judgment was demanded, and yet mercy prevailed. You see, when it states that we could have been like Sodom or become like Gomorrah, Isaiah is not saying, you know, we restrained, I restrained your sin so that you're not as sinful as Sodom and Gomorrah. What he's actually saying is, no, I'm restraining my judgment so that you're not destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this from the next verse, but it's clear that Isaiah is identifying the people of Israel, of Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah. They shouldn't continue in their rebellion. Rather, they should turn towards God. You see, this is the first step of joyfully committing your heart to the Lord. You have to realize that you're in rebellion against God and that your rebellion is foolishness. The Lord has spared you from the judgment of your sin. You want evidence? You're still alive. He spared you from the judgment of your sin so that you might declare his praises. The only question to ask is will you take the opportunity to turn? At this point, I think Isaiah is, is, knows the people of Israel well. 
He knows they're stiff-necked as ever. And he says all these things, and he knows, you know what? They still don't get the point. They probably think, when I said verse 9, he's like, they probably think they're a little bit better than Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, he continues this chapter, and he goes deeper. He explains exactly how they have rebelled against the Lord. And he does this so they might fully understand what it means to fully commit themselves to God. Look with me at verse 10. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Again, Isaiah is connecting the two people together. He's saying, FYI, you're really sinful right now. Like Sodom and Gomorrah level sinful. Um, if that wasn't clear enough. <laughs> Read verse 11 with me. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. You see, sacrifices and offerings were meant to take away the sins of the people. They were meant to purify the people and to make them clean. The people were expected to offer these animals that were clean and pure in order for the price of their sin to be purged. The saint of the sin is placed on the animal, and that takes the punishment away from the sinner. Yet God says he's had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And if you're an Israelite at this, time, at this moment, I get a feeling you might find this a little bit strange. Wait a second, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. Didn't you tell me to offer bulls and lambs and goats. Isn't that what he wanted? Now he's saying he has no delight in it? Is God being two-faced? God continues in verses 12 and 13. He says, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of the convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. You're telling me the incense that you asked for are an abomination to you. Like, I, it's enough to say that you've had enough, that you don't delight in it, but how can you be so repulsed by us just doing what you asked us to do? But he keeps going. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And you can hear some Israelites, not all of them, but some of them saying, you asked for this. Every Sabbath, every feast of first fruits, every feast of weeks, every feast of booth, every year of Jubilee. You asked us to do that, Lord. What is so burdensome about that? But the sacrifices that were supposed to make them clean left their hands full of blood. The festivals that were supposed to bring them into God's presence left them outside of, his, outside of his gaze. The appointed times that were supposed to bring delight to the Lord led to disgust. And here lies the issue. We've got we to think about this. We've got to break this down because we're missing something if we're thinking like that, right? I think this brings to us two extremes that we have to be incredibly mindful of when we think about the Christian life. So let's talk about the first one. Let's clear up the first misconception. 
This text should not be used to say that God did not want the Israelites to perform sacrifices. That would be a gross misunderstanding of this text. And you say, many are, you see, many in our day would actually kind of rally with that type of idea. They would say, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Those, those fundamentalist Christians, they're just a bunch of rule followers. God doesn't actually delight in those things, just like he didn't delight in those sacrifices. In fact, I think you hear this type of phrase often, and this phrase, I really hate religion. I hate that word. What's most important is having a relationship with God. And, and I want to say, I see the heart behind that. Um, I see what, what you could possibly be trying to say. But I want you to know that God actually did tell the Israelites to do these things. God actually did tell the Israelites to do things. And he tells us to do things today. They were actually called to make sacrifices for their sins. They were actually called to gather for appointed festivals and to rest from work on the Sabbath. If you're speaking against religion in the sense of hypocritical religion, I'm with you. If you're speaking against religion in the sense of legalistic religion, I'm with you on that. But most people use this in a text like this to speak against organized religion. They don't want to follow rules that are spoken in his word, established by his authority, and upheld by his church. So instead of saying, I have to go to church, they state, I don't have to have to go to church because I have a relationship with God. Instead of saying, I have to pray a certain amount of times, they state, it's okay if I don't pray. God knows my heart. Instead of saying, I have to evangelize, they state, don't worry about it. God, God will make a way. As if there's no responsibility at all, they feel like their relationship and God's grace grants them complete and utter freedom. Well, Galatians 5.13 tells us some things about that. We are called to freedom, but that's a freedom that should not be used as an opportunity for the flesh to shirk off the responsibilities that God has called us to. That freedom should rather be used through love to serve one another. In what ways do you use God's grace to avoid what God commands? The second danger that we see in a text like this is an overemphasis on one's adherence to the responsibilities that God has commanded. An overemphasis on one's duty. Another word for speaking about this is legalism. While God did command these things, he obviously for some reason is not pleased by them. You see, when we're talking about giving our hearts to the Lord, we cannot do so in such a legalistic way. You see, the Jews have this type of understanding where if they made the right sacrifices, attended the right festivals, they would be good with God. But this, this type of logic reminds me of something else that we hear in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 7.22, perhaps, where many come to Jesus and say, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? They, they bring up the name a lot, but do you notice what they're actually emphasizing? What they did. And what's Jesus' reply to that? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong about focusing on one's duty and following the rules as if that's the only thing that matters. And we, we tend to, to do this a lot today too, right? It's the the nominal Christians who come only during uh, Christmas and Easter so that they can fulfill their yearly Christian duty as if coming on Christmas and Easter actually saves you. Yet, 
it, can even, it doesn't even have to be yearly. You can come to church every single week still trying to cross off a box. Maybe it's the person who thinks they haven't prayed enough, so they try to pray more. And once they pray enough, then they'll fulfill their Christian duty. Or maybe if, if you don't do enough evangelism, if you talk to enough people, I did. I've done my Christian duty. You see, we all find ways to make a checklist to measure ourselves um, to see if we're actually saved. But that's not the right way to think about this. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what's on my list? What am I trying to check off? So if it's wrong to avoid God's commandments, well, there's also an incorrect way to follow the Lord's commandments. Then what's the right response? And I think the answer lies in what we have said before. What's the main charge against the Israelites? They have rebelled. They have forsaken. They have despised. They may have done the right action, but they did so for the wrong reasons and with the wrong heart posture. Their duty lacked delight. You can read this text and see that God wasn't satisfied with their duty, but if you dig a little bit deeper, you see the real reason why. Yes, they were hypocrites. They followed the rituals and then completely failed to do other things. And it's true that God's angry with them because of that. But I want to suggest that their wickedness is the fruit and not the root of their issues. You see, sacrifices were not only supposed to take away the penalty of sin, but it was also supposed to show the gravity of what they had done. It was supposed to make them realize and stop and think, wait a second, I was deserving of that punishment. And it was supposed to lead them to not repeat that action again. Instead, they used it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. It was simply used to cover up their sin, not transform them. You see, the biggest problem for the Hebrews is not that they needed the sacrifices. It's not that they even did the sacrifices. The biggest problem is that the sacrifices didn't transform them into the people that God was trying to make them to be. You see, it's not that their obedience, it's not that they weren't obedient. It's that their obedience didn't go far enough. Their obedience was supposed to go to the heart level. I mean, look at it. They forsake, forsake him. They despised him. Verse 5, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. Verse 6, there's no, there's no soundness in them. The issue is not what they're doing, but the heart that it flows from. It's who they are. And this is so important for us to understand. This duty-focused religion, this legalistic religion, was not wrong because they were doing what God said. It was wrong because they didn't desire to do it, and they didn't desire to be changed by it. You see, legalism... False religion is what occurs when you separate obedience from true heart change. Legalism is simply obedience without a true desire for God. And if I haven't convinced you yet, Hosea, who preached during the same time of Isaiah, says this in Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And another place, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, we get the story from Jesus where a scribe comes to him and he says, what's the mo most important commandment, Jesus? And what does he say? You guys know? Exactly. Love the Lord our heart and soul, mind and strength. But what does the scribe say in response to him? 
Yeah, most people don't know. But here's what he says. In Mark 12, 32, he says, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This has profound implications for us today. You may have not grumbled at God's appointed feasts and festivals, but I guarantee you struggled to delight in God's Sunday morning gathering. You may have not grumbled at the task of offering yet another spotless animal, but I guarantee you've probably struggled with joyfully offering your time. Remember what we said in the beginning. Isaiah is saying this so that the people would joyfully commit their heart to the Lord. And I want to be careful because I don't want to say that that means we're going to be Christians with smiles on our faces all the time, as if nothing's ever hard and the things that God calls us to aren't difficult sometimes. Evangelism can be hard. Children can be difficult. Sometimes it's hard to get up on Sunday mornings. But if we have a heart that is constantly despising to do the things that God has called us to do, then what that tells us is we might actually have a problem. I mean, just think, consider the implications of what it means of having a heart that does not joyfully love what God loves. In fact, this is the premise of J.C. Ryle's excellent essay, Suppose an Unholy Man Went to Heaven. And I want you to hear a little bit of this because it's it says, says this idea much better than I could, so just listen to this. Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? Feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourselves? And by whose side would you sit? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their tastes are not your tastes. Their character, not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth? Now, perhaps you think prayer and scripture reading and hymn singing, dull and melancholy things and stupid work, a thing to be tolerated now and then, but not enjoyed. You reckon the Sabbath a burden and a a weariness. You could not spend possibly more than a small amount of your time in it worshiping God. But remember, heaven is a never-ending Sabbath. The inhabitants, therefore, rest not day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and singing the praise of the Lamb. How could an unholy man find pleasure in occupation such as this? People may say in a vague way they hope to go to heaven, but they do not consider what they say. Now, I highly suggest to you that you spend at some point of your afternoon reading that entire essay because it's excellent. And ponder that idea for yourself because I think it's revealing, Right? This type of desire is the difference between saying, I have to go to church, or I'm free not to go to church. No, you get to go to church. It's the difference between saying, I have to read my Bible, or why would I read my Bible? No, you get to read your Bible. I don't know if you realize, most Christians throughout history didn't have access to a Bible. It's the difference between saying, I have to evangelize. No, you get to evangelize because God has blessed you enough to be a part of his grand plan to restore all things to himself. 
Isaiah wants his hearers to joyfully submit to the Lord. Hear that word, joyfully. Out of all the things that God has called you to, where do you lack joy? Isaiah says to the people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And this is a, a, a big theme in Isaiah, the fact that people are not people of justice like the Lord is. And that's something that we'll talk about at a later date because there's a lot more to, to digest there. But here's the big picture. Take that sick heart of yours and make it clean. Let the sacrifices have their intended effect. Become people whose concerns are the Lord's concerns. Become the people who reflect the God who has redeemed them. And what does that mean for us? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Church, the Lord is at hand. He's at hand in your parenting, and your evangelism, and your marriages, in this very gathering that we're in this morning. We should rejoice in these things. Don't, don't do these things out of obligation. Do these things out of the steadfast love of the one who has redeemed you. Do these things because you delight in the Lord and what he's called you to. And yet we, we know the history of Israel. We see their current situation. As we read this text, we think to ourselves when we get to this point, how can that be so? The history of Israel tells us that they can't wash themselves. They can't transform their hearts. They've had chance upon chance and yet God still extends mercy. He says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love what one commentator says about this verse. He says, the Lord applies the remedy where he discerns the need. The people will be washed. The sovereign God will change them. The story isn't over just yet. God will redeem for himself a people. And he's going to do that through a better sacrifice, through a better offering. If we, if we look later to, to how the story unfolds, Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 5 tells us this. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as, as written for me in the scroll of the book. When he above when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he, he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, we can't wash ourselves and make ourselves clean. Only God can do that. But there is that tension. There is a need 
for us to be cleansed. There is a need for justice and judgment. And that's what Jesus came to do. He is the better sacrifice. He is the better offering. One who is not just temporary like these animals, but who had full life in himself, who lived the perfect life, who died the death that we deserve and stood in our place for our punishment. You see, if they're willing and obedient, God will extend mercy out once more. God will forgive them and make them as white as snow. This is Isaiah's version of Jesus' invitation when he says, repent and believe. So how will you respond? Will you continue in unrestrained sin? Will you continue in legalistic religion? Or will you joyfully commit your heart to the Lord? Come, let the Lord receive you.